welcome Neil. This yes. is hell. Okie doke. Manufacturing descent since 1996. This is hell. We live in different worlds, completely different realities. We hear it all the time. It's repeated so frequently that we're led to believe that even our neighbor might live in a world that exists entirely separate from our own. If we believe that's the case, with the person who lives right next door... Imagine how we must feel about the people who live on the other side of the planet from us. Their reality must have nothing to do with ours at all, which negates any impact our actions may have on their lives or their actions may have on ours. But, in fact, ideas born out of the United States lead to government policies and business models that are then exported globally. Those policies and models, often prioritizing profit over everything else, can have a devastating impact on the ground where they are implemented. That devastation can lead its victims to flee for their lives. That flight then turns into a mass migration, and often that exodus, if you will, ends up at the southern border of the United States, which is deep in crisis. Today, very much, today we very, <laughs> sorry, today we will be talking about that interconnectedness, how we are very much in the same world. When we discuss the border crisis facing farmers fleeing India due to the U.S. model of industrial agriculture. Our guest today will be Tanvi Misra, who posted the Baffler article, Broader Crises, Indian Border Crossers Illuminate the Interconnectedness of Mass Migration. Tanvi is a freelance writer and multimedia journalist who covers migration, urban policy, and criminal justice, as well as spatial marginalization, economic inequality, and criminal justice. You can find out more about Tanvi at tanvimisra.com. You can follow Tanvi on Twitter at Tanvi M and check out Tanvi's blog at Eyes Emoji on Migration, Eyes Emoji on Migration.substack.com. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show podcast live streaming host Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Jess Lipka. Jess, how have you been? I'm doing well. How are you? Good. Anything happened this last week or weekend of excitement for you? Um, anything this weekend. Me and my roommate are starting a kids boxing class in our neighborhood, so we did that yesterday. No kidding. Do you have, yeah. any, do you have kids show up? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How many? Um, like, like four or five yesterday. Very cool. What ages? Yeah. So, like, eight to 14 is the focus, yeah. Crazy. Um, are you charging people? No, no, no. That's very cool. Yeah, yeah. Because you got a gym set up in your garage, right? We do, but it's probably too small. We got to move. <laughs> so it didn't work for... There's a convertible in half of the. Uh, half of the I thing. see that's <laughs> causing an issue, and you don't. Yeah. You know, boxing inside of a convertible can really uh, teach you range. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> how, to, how to manage the ring. My weekend was kind of a blur. Friday night, I came over here uh, to the bar and met up with our correspondent in Brazil from Sao Paulo, Brian Mir, also of Telesur English and uh, Brazil Wire. We had a few beers, ended up over at my place out on our back deck overlooking beautiful Warren Park. Then Jeff Dorchin, who does the Moment of Truth here on This Is Hell, showed up. We got pizza, got drunk. Like I said, the rest is kind of a blur because one of us got something at the quote-unquote marijuana store that apparently knocked us all on our ass. We shared stories that I 
cannot share on the air, and I probably cannot remember accurately anyway, so if I retold them, it probably wouldn't be doing them justice. Saturday after recuperating, going for a walk at the Neighborhood Nature Center, where we saw a deer. It's so awesome to be here in Chicago and seeing a deer walk around 20 feet away from you. I uh, After that, I watched a triple, triple feature of movies, the classic 1968 Steve McQueen movie, Bullet, followed by the god-awful most recent chapter in the Men in Black franchise, which, to be honest, was nothing but hate-watching, and the triple feature wrapped up with the most successful martial arts movie ever made, 1973's Enter the Dragon with Bruce Lee. And again, all day Sunday, I did nothing but recuperate from watching that triple feature and getting lit. But more importantly than my weekend of drinking and watching movies, Jess, what's this week's question from hell? This week's question from hell is, where did it all go wrong? Where did it all go wrong? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell for our listening audience wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can see all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you'll see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing. So thanks to all of you for your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email it to chuck at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of Thursday's show when we are announcing this week's winner, as we do every week following Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth. Jess will be sharing your answers to this week's question from hell following our discussion with Tanvi Misra. Again, the question from hell is, where did it all go wrong? Where did it all go wrong? Not when, not how, not why, but where did it all go wrong? Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we can be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell, and Jess has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is rubbing your face with the top of a bullet point pen. Have you ever heard of that phrase, a bullet point pen, before? No. No, neither have I. I don't know what the hell that is. Yeah, ballpoint pen. Ballpoint, sure. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Um, The U.S. version of of the British tabloid The Sun posted a story with the headline, Woman claims she can cure a hangover in minutes using just massage. And that story, uh, writes Lydia Hawkins reports, uh, posting on her TikTok page, Wellness with Sakshi, the health guru raved about an acupuncture tool which she claims drains the body of toxins, although she claims the top of a bullet point pen would work just as well. She caption- captioned her clip, Next time you've had too much to drink and wake up feeling that hangover. In the clip, Sakshi explains, try massaging each of these reflex points for one to two minutes. Sakshi then films herself slowly massaging points halfway between the tip of her nose and her lips next to each of her nostrils, in between her eyebrows. She then massages her cheekbones, explaining I added these two points on the right side of my face for liver and gallbladder. This will help ease the hangover by suppressing the effects of alcohol. That makes this week's hangover cure, using a top of a bullet point pen to massage that spot between the tip of your nose and lips next to each of your nostrils, in between your eyebrows, and to rub your cheekbones as well. Again, what the hell is a bullet point pen? I... What the hell? I just love that uh, British phrase. I want to use that from now on instead of ballpoint. And also, I think ballpoint might be a registered trademark, so maybe they can't say ballpoint in British press. I don't know. Putting people before profits, which turns out to be a 
horrible business model. This is hell, and you can help with the horrible business model of your friends here at This Is Hell by subscribing to our weekly Friday Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. Last week, we spoke with Maya Montenegro on the show about her short but intense book, Abolitionist Agroecology, Food Sovereignty and Pandemic Prevention. During that conversation, Maya reminded us that the UN Food Systems Summit is happening at the end of the month from July 26th through the 29th in Rome. So on Patreon, we shared our conversation from immediately after the same summit back in 2002, which also took place in Rome. Back when we, then we spoke with the Institute for Food and Development Policy and Food First co-director Peter Rossett, who debunked many of the myths around world hunger, including the most pernicious, which is hunger is caused by a lack of food production. The problem is small yields and the need for better engineered crops or advancements in food technology. In fact, we don't need any of that. The driving force behind hunger is poverty. It was back in 2002, and it still is today. Also on Patreon, I ranted about how I do not want to go back to normal, as normal as what got us to this hell in the first place. Exactly why would we want to return to the same set of circumstances that got us at pandemic and climate change and racialized police violence? Did we not learn any lessons at all from the past 18 months? Are we all going to rush back to the denialism of our actions having absolutely no consequences? Because that is normal, but that thinking should no longer be tolerated now that it has killed millions around the world through the virus. But you can only hear a nearly 20-year-old conversation on world hunger that sounds far too much like it could have been conducted yesterday, and why we should definitely not return to normal by subscribing to our weekly Friday Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. This Saturday, July 24th, beginning at 2 p.m. in Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood, Jeff Dorchin will be reading some of his favorite moments of truth with live musical accompaniment. That's this Saturday, July 24th at 2 p.m. in Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue. So if you are listening right now to the world broadcast premiere of This Is Hell, which airs every Saturday morning on Chicago Sound Experiment, WNUR 89.3 FM, immediately after listening to the show, hightail it over or up or down to Carrie's Lounge and see Jeff Dorchin deliver moments of truth live with musical accompaniment. Also happening at Carrie's is the celebration of our 25th anniversary of broadcasting on WNUR, which we'll do by hosting a listener appreciation party and art show all day, Saturday, September 18th, featuring live music and a raffle of This Is Hell-related or inspired prizes. If you are a musician or would like to suggest a musical act you would like to see perform, or you are an artist or would like to recommend an artist for the art opening that's happening upstairs here at Second Story Studios, just outside of this studio, email us at chuckatthisishell.com and maybe you or your suggestion will be performing their music or showing their artwork. That's the 25th anniversary This Is Hell Listener Appreciation Party and Art Show, This Is Art, happening on Saturday, September 18th. Send your suggestions for musical acts to perform or artists to show their work ASAP to Chuck at ThisIsHell.com. Yes, I know, our actual anniversary of airing on WNUR for 25 years is actually tomorrow, 
Tuesday, July 20th. But we had to reschedule the party due to the ongoing pandemic. So it's now happening again on Saturday, September 18th, all day at Carrie's Lounge. Coming up, how U.S. support for industrial agriculture is causing a global border crisis. We will also have this week in Rotten History some of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, where did it all go wrong? Where did it all go wrong? And we will tell you what's coming up this week here on This Is Hell. Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell sanity in talk radio. So clearly, and sadly, Noam's gone insane. This is hell. India's farmers are in crisis and have been for years facing increasing deregulation and the expansion of huge agricultural firms buying up large swaths of land, pushing small farmers who cannot compete further and further into untouched hinterlands where many viruses currently reside that can become pandemics. This expulsion has led many Indian farmers to suicide. Others have decided there is no future for them in their home country and have decided to leave. The problem is the nation that has promoted the policies that have forced the farmers to flee also has a policy of not accepting refugees from U.S. agribusiness and economic policies. Here to tell us about the people at the southern border that are rarely associated with that border, Tanvi Misra posted the Baffler article, Broader Crises. Indian border crossers illuminate the interconnectedness of mass migration. Welcome to This Is Hell, Tanvi. Thanks so much for having me. Happy to be here. I love this article because it's always the stereotype of the Mexican crossing at the border and then tagging them as an illegal immigrant. What do you think just that focus on the only people coming across, either being from Mexico or maybe Honduras, Guatemala, El Salvador, how do you think that that kind of framing of the border crisis only involving Central Americans and especially Mexicans as illegal uh, immigrants, how do you think that may mislead us and uh, our thoughts on the border crisis? Yeah, um, well, I mean, what I argue in the piece is that uh, it misleads us because it really uh, constricts our idea of um, what uh, what the origins of this crisis, if we want to call it that, are and, and how sort of decentralized and, and widespread they are and, and really what is what are the the. Um, you know what are the root causes of these crises, right? And what, why are people moving, and who are the people that are moving, and and how are they being constrained, and how are the things that actually led them to move being uh, the injustices being reproduced um, at the very borders where we're we're sort of focusing um, at this moment. So so that's really what um, I think this this sort of narrow myopic vision of what's happening at the border does is it it obscures the the actual problem. The, the larger problem uh, and the crises that are happening all around the world. Um, I mean, it, as I mentioned in the piece, it, it, it makes sense why there is this focus to some extent, right? I mean, we've always um, seen very large numbers of people coming from uh, countries like Mexico for obvious reasons, proximity, right? Um, and also that... Uh, uh, especially with Mexico, the United States has been um, involved uh, in the economy uh, in in much more hands-on ways. Um, and then, of course, uh, you know you can kind of extend that a little bit further and talk about the Northern Triangle countries or the Central American countries from where we see a lot of of migration. Um, and so there is this idea, right, that there that that this is really the face of migration at the southern border. Um, but really, from the very um, 
you know, from the birth of the nation, that's not just been the only people coming um, to America. I mean, there's just, a, a, I write about Indians here. I, I am Indian and, and you know, I am an immigrant myself, but um, the history of Indian migration to the United States is, is extremely long. It's not a new, it's not a new thing. It's not a new phenomenon. And so, so that's really what I wanted to write about is, is that connection there and what, what it really represents. Do you think the quote-unquote illegal immigrant from Mexico or Central America, do you think that's a, an intentional obfuscation of the global impact of U.S. economic and government policies and even industrial policies? Because when we, if you only think that the people at the border are from Mexico or Central America, you might think that the United States only has a regional impact on other countries' economic policies. So do you think this is an intentional obfuscation of the global impact of U.S. economic and government and business policies? Um, I think it, at this point it is so normalized that I, I don't really know where to place the intention in in this uh, uh, in, in the way that we talk about this. It, 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 it certainly is normalized and it certainly does have the effect of doing all the things that you just mentioned. Um, you know, I, I do think that cre- the creation of the illegal immigrant, you know, the fi- this this sort of nefarious figure who's here to, it, it, it is very, it is synonymous with how, um, you know, we talk about, or we did talk about, and I think still that, that, uh, that figure still persists, the welfare queen, right? Like we, we talk about, it's a very racialized figure. Um, and always has been, and it is very much rooted in our ideas of poverty and um, ide- narratives about uh, uh, people who are poor, um, you know, wanting to sort of take and not give and, and, and sort of not be deserving of, of basic human rights. And I think um, those are overlapping ideas and, and they uh, certainly apply to the idea of the illegal um, immigrant. And I think what was convenient um, for all the reasons I just mentioned was that this became, uh, uh, you know, the, the the southern border really became the the uh, spatial focus of this uh, this 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 figure, and 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 you know, it took on the the face of a Mexican person, a, a, a young man. Usually, you know, it was it, it's also a gendered idea. So. Um, so, so I think it is convenient. Um, I, I think it was intentional, probably intentionally done at some point. Um, but at this point, it's just so normalized that it's kind of hard to place um, intention versus, you know, this is just what people take for granted. You write that before an excruciating second wave of COVID-19 drowned it out, your hometown in India was the site of one of the largest protests in history's families had thronged to Delhi from neighboring agricultural states to oppose new laws that the ruling party had rammed through parliament. The measures, they argued, would decimate the little economic security the farmers had left. So prior to these new measures, how were farmers already losing what economic security they uh, may have previously had. How bad was it already for farmers? Because after all, you know, the National Crime Records Bureau of India reported in 2012, 13,445 farmers committed suicide. In India, one farmer committed suicide every 32 minutes between 1997 mm-hmm. and 2005. Almost 75% of farmer suicides have occurred amongst the small and medium farmers. So how bad did small uh, farmers have it even before these new mm-hmm. me- measures were, as you say, rammed through parliament? Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, all the figures you just noted, uh, you know, kind of illustrate just how bad it was and is and has been for a really long time. I mean, these are 
Um, you know, and I, I don't want to just represent these farmers as victims, though. I, I think they've always been fighting um, their own government. Um, and, and, you know, they, they, their fight really goes back all the way to uh, British imperial rule. I mean, uh, the Raj at, at you know, uh, pretty much the entire time is it's, it's, it's the way that they exploited, uh, uh, you know, the, their colonies and India uh, was, was a really good example of this. I mean, they would um, ram British products in Indian markets. They would force Indian farmers to uh, grow indigo, which was in high demand in in um, Britain at the time, and and that was not you know they they took away sort of the indigenous and and localized um, uh, farming uh, that the farmers uh, used to do before that, and and you know kind of made them uh, force this upon them, and uh, it, you know that was just one way um, and one of the most obvious ways I think um, that we hear about this. Um, you know the the more, one of the most famous they, they basically took a lot of. Um, the self-sufficiency um, and, you know, kind of extracted that from the Indian agricultural economy at the time. And, um, you know, one of the, one of the things that, uh, one of the, I think, most dramatic sort of um, anti-colonial uh, rallies or, or demonstrations that, you know, we, we heard of growing up or we read about in textbooks um, time and time again was, uh, you know, M.K. Gandhi's march to, uh, to make salt because you know our own food we couldn't grow. Um, so so I think it just kind of it's, it, there's a long tradition of this, right? So the Indian farmers have really been have borne the brunt of uh, imperial exploitation, um, and then that continued after independence. Those class structures, those those sort of power dynamics had already been established, and you know we had the Green Revolution, we had uh, successive since the 1990s, um, you know successive waves of liberalization um, of the Indian economy. Uh, we had the entry of um, agribusinesses and and GMO seed uh, producers. You know these multi corporations, um, and and the farmers. Uh, the, the entire time um, are dealing with these multiple levels of, of uh, marginalization, right? So uh, they're, they're dealing with this from their own governments, from their own local governments, from the federal government in India, and then also from this like globalized system, capitalist system of, uh, of industrial food production, right? So, so it's been ongoing for a really long time. I will say that they have always resisted and, you know, they have, they, they've always, um, uh, they've always uh, been able to shed light on, on the kinds of things that they've been facing and been very clear. They, I mean, they're, they're a formidable force to be reckoned with, uh, which is why this latest protest, and I'm, I'm coming back to this now, is, um, is, is, what experts are saying is one of the reasons that the Modi government, the, the uh, government of Prime Minister Narendra Modi, uh, which is an authoritarian government, uh, is you know it kind of brought them to their knees. It was the only thing in so many in in, in their in their tenure that that sort of um, really led to questions about their power. So we'll see how sustained that is, but but that is something to note about their power in numbers. You mentioned right at the beginning of your response how you are hesitant to refer to or view the Indian farmers as victims. What uh, problems could that cause in anybody's analysis or understanding of the situation with Indian farmers by viewing them as victims? 
I mean, I think it's the same way that, again, you know, the connections that I make when I cover um, migrants here in the United States is that there is a tendency to um, strip um, these people of their agency um, because they're marginalized on all these different levels. Um, I think there is a tendency to view them as victims and, and think about them in, in those narrow terms. Again, you know, with the narrowness, um, but they are they're people and they're they're exerting their agency in various different ways. And I, I just want to make a note of that. I try to do that in my work all the time. Um, so I, I just think it's important for us to recognize that whatever, um, you know, it's my job to point out the problems, but I, you know, the solutions really will come from these people. Um, and so I think it's really important to listen to them. Um, and I'm, I'm grateful that I'm able to do that in my work, but, um, but I do think that is something that I find lacking in, in wider coverage of these farmers, but also of, um, you know, of, of immigrants and migrants in the United States. That's really interesting because that that then seeing them as victims then eliminates any power that they may have and eliminates your interest, the viewer's interest in what they may have to say because after all they're just victims. That's really interesting. You uh, so since independence, you know, uh, India gained independence in, on August fifteenth, nineteen forty-seven, almost seventy-five years ago. So, to what extent has colonialism ended in India? Uh. Since I'm sorry, could you repeat the question? So, uh, you know, because we were talking about uh, Indian farmers have been vulnerable to exploitative multinational agri-corporations. You know, India won its independence on August 15th, 1947, almost 75 years ago. So mm -hmm. to what extent is colonialism actually over in India? <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's a really interesting question because I, I think you'll have to we'll have to really widen our idea of what colonialism and conquest and and and, um, and you know sort of the ways that they exert themselves. I, I do think that you know at at the moment um, the United States holds a lot of power uh, uh, in in you know just around uh, on countries around the world and then therefore their people in in various different ways and uh, you know exporting its businesses its um its goods its products its its ideologies and 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 uh, you know um uh, processes uh, is one way that they do that. Now, some people may say that that's, that's not colonialism in the in the traditional way that we know it, but you know it, it is an influence and an, an a coercion in in a lot of different ways. And so you could argue that it's never really ended, um, you know. But at the same time, I do also want to mention, you know, that there is this um, from the Indian perspective, there is this um, this this tendency um, to externalize India's problems, um, especially by the current government. Um, you know, right now, I, I think you may have seen because it was all over the news, uh, international media, uh, but with the current, uh, with the COVID surge that happened recently that I, that I start my piece with, um, there were these uh, images of funeral pyres, uh, right? Because of the mass deaths that were happening that were a direct consequence of the um, administration's mismanagement. Um, and, you know, the, the reaction to that in Indian media was just to say that this is a, a, a foreign, uh, you know, conspiracy to malign India and India's people and India's government. And, and that's been like a longstanding uh, excuse, I think. And so I want to balance that and, and say, yes, it is. It is certainly um, there are uh, there is this. Uh, this power dynamic um, on an international on an international level. 
uh, where, you know, certainly India is the subject, you know, is one of the countries that is subjugated to some extent. Um, at the same time, there are uh, powerful, powerful people within India that uh, that also propagate those systems uh, and ideologies, um, and they are just as much to blame. And so, um, so I do, I do want to just, you know, make a note of that and balance that, uh, that, that proposition. And you write how in her book, Border and Rule, Global Migration, Capitalism and the Rise of Racist Nationalism, Harsha Walia provides a necessary global lens through which to understand migration, drawing connections between systemic forces in a variety of contexts. She asks, what role do countries like the United States play? What ideologies and institutions do they support that create crises elsewhere around the world that force people to leave? So what are or is the ideology of the United States that forces people to leave their homes in India and around the world? Um, I mean, there there are so many, but, you know, capitalism is one of them. Um, you know, one of the ways that uh, capitalist mega uh, uh, mega projects, like dam projects, mega dam projects, for example, in India are have displaced indig- indigenous people, Adivasi people. Um, you know, it's it's that's like one specific example that I can think of. Uh, but yeah, there are so many different ways in which um, you know capitalism as an ideology um, has uh, has played a role in the crisis that Indian farmers are currently facing. Uh, I mean, you know, I, I talked earlier about the liberalization, like waves of liberalization. There are uh, American agribusinesses um, that are. Uh, you know that have flooded Indian uh, Indian agricultural markets and and really sidelined the farmers um, who who cannot compete. So I mean that that's another way. You know you have the GMO seeds and crops and 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 the way that that functions within the Indian agricultural sphere. And and I have to make I mean India is an agricultural economy. It is still primarily an agricultural economy. These companies, these entities, and these systems that are put in place, and then the laws that go on to support them. Right. So there's these layers. Um, that that are sort of offshoots of capitalism that America uh, American capitalism really and and um, and and so that's you know that's one way um, but we can we can think about it in a different way as well I mean uh, in, in a different context or facet uh, when we think about um, climate climate change you know the, uh, what Indian farmers um, are certainly facing and have been facing for a long time the effects of climate change you know with rising um, uh, rising global temperatures, uh, they've you know viability of their their agricultural land has decreased. Um, they are prone to uh, you know natural natural quote unquote disasters, um, you know, and they are the most vulnerable in that, in that sense, right? And so, um, you know, that's another way. I mean, there are American businesses that have also come in and, and located in India and caused. A massive, uh, you know, ca- chemical disasters. Um, for example, in Bhopal, um, a, a decade or so ago. Uh, these are, you know, these are some concrete ways in, in which these systems perpetuate. And and I think that is the way that they they sort of look like in in. And, and this is again, like, you know, in this article, I was just kind of um, just really skimming the surface. Uh, this is. Um, you know, there are people researching this. This is this. There are connections here that are so deep that it's really hard to get into it all at this point. But um, you know, those are some ways in which which we see we see this happen in India. 
That's just a small part of the long list. That's a really good point. You're right. India is the world's biggest source of migrants, with the highest numbers going to the United Arab Emirates, the United States, and Saudi Arabia, according to the United Nations. Thousands of Indians come to America each year on work, college, and family-sponsored visas. The ones who cross this country's borders without authorization, however, are less visible while their apprehensions are still much lower in absolute terms compared to migrants from Central America and Mexico, the increase over the last several years is remarkable. So why are they not getting authorization to enter the United States? Is If you give the reason at the U.S. border that the reason that you're coming to the United States is because of U.S. agribusiness policies in India, Is that a good enough reason to be allowed into the country? After all, you are a refugee from problems created by U.S. agribusiness. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, that's not how the U.S. government sees it. And so that is not a good enough reason. Um, That is also not, as I argue, what a lot of people are citing when they when they claim asylum here. Um, You know, what they're citing is what they experience as a lived experience every day, which is subjugation from powerful, powerful people in their own, you know, in their own local space. And they, they may not like be articulating sort of the connections and how they trickle, how they trickle down in the, in the same way that I think we are in this, in this podcast, but um, what they're seeing at on the ground and at their, um, in, in their localities are, um, are very much those connections trickling down. For example, I note that um, it, it's really difficult um, in India, uh, you know, basic resources, just the way, at, at, you know, on a global scale, we have local resources uh, or we have natural resources being monopolized and extracted by certain powerful few. That's exactly what happens in a neighborhood in India, right? And it's the powerful, you know, the, the goons that are the uh, the the uh, lackeys for the local 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 elected uh, who are you know who are sort of hustling everyone on the ground and then you know getting like protection money or whatever um, and the police are all you know paying off the police and the police are doing the same kind of harassment and if you are not if you're outside of everyone's a part of that system and and you know there are people who are the winners and there are people who are the losers and and often it's the losers who have to either make a choice of like staying there or escaping and then how do you articulate the complexity of that that problem when you come to a different border it's it's very difficult to say yes i was actually persecuted by my government uh, but you know it, it's it's hard to kind of articulate just the complexity of why they were persecuted by someone who is an elected official and their goons who have been harassing them for so much time because they're not paying them money for you know the uh for giving them water for giving them access to water the, the local water you know there's like local water mafia in india <laughs> so it, it's really you know that kind of complexity is really not captured by the laws and the um and the and the resources that are used by asylum officers in the U.S. to make these decisions, it's it's very black and white and cut and dry. It, the law really hasn't caught up to the realities of the world, which is that there is there are widespread climate refugees that that's already happening. It's not a thing of the future, um, and that you know the way that all of these different systems connect and trickle down is really complicated and it, it's really hard to extract especially in these cases so no when they come to the border and they say that they've been persecuted often they're not believed and and they're you know detained for long periods of time and then they're deported so so that's really the the kind of um you know fate that uh, that a lot of these young they're often young men um, from states that are neighboring the one that I grew up in uh, um, face when they come to the border. 
So are those decisions, do you think those decisions are guided by ignorance, by denialism, or by racism? I think it's a combination of all of those things. And I also think that, you know, there is, um, you know, something that I really, that really struck me about Walia's uh, book, Harsha Walia's book that I quote in this, in this piece, is that she doesn't just look at migration from the lens of um, racism, which is a very important lens and should absolutely be applied, um, especially in the United States and most Western countries, um, but also in in through the social hierarchies um, that exist in the place of origin of these people. So in India, for example, class and caste, um, you know, play a huge role in how in the in the in the way that Indians relate to each other. Um, it infiltrates really every aspect of Indian life, uh, whether or not you're Hindu or not, you know. So, um, you know, those are all, there's violent, especially uh, under the Modi government, and this is this definitely predates the Modi government, but has intensified under the Modi government, you know, violence against Muslims, violence against um, people of so-called uh, lower castes is, is really common. And those are also reasons why people escape. And then they are the reasons that those people um, are then marginalized at the border that they reach asking for protection um, because those are not recognized, um, those are not recognized categories um, in need of protection um, as they should be. You know, so again, it's this, it's this very um, what I like about Wale is that she she it's it's Yes, it's race and, right? It's race, but it, it breaks down much further than that. And, and that's really the problem here is that all of those, those layers are not really acknowledged by the laws and the policies. We are speaking with Tanvi Misra, who posted the Baffler article, Broader Crises. Indian border crossers illuminate the interconnectedness of mass migration. Check out Tanvi's blog at eyesemojionmigration.substack.com. That's eyesemojionmigration.substack.com. You write that some have painted the latest wave of Indian migration to the southern U.S. border as a new phenomenon, lamenting that the Biden administration's yet-to-be-realized promise of a more humane border is drawing, quote-unquote, mobs from around the world you point out that mobs comes the word mob comes from the word mobility which i never knew before so is the word mobs is it racist is it anti-migrant is it even a dog whistle for racists and people who are anti-migrant yeah and that i i should say that comes from walia so i i, I want to give her due credit that uh that's a quote from her book um, and it was new to me as well. I, I didn't know it. And what was really interesting to me was that that's exactly how, um, you know, uh, when when the farmers, when the Indian farmers, they marched to New Delhi, they they you know rallied uh, at the margins of that city. That's sort of how they were they were characterized by you know a lot of the. Um, state adjacent media in India, um, which was really interesting to me because that's also how, um, I don't know if you remember, but under the Trump administration, um, after um, 
you know, being stopped by uh, the Mexican border police at the Mexico border, um, you know, and then again at the U.S.-Mexico border. Um, some migrants, after being, you know, having to wait there for really long periods of time because of a slew of, of Trump-era policies, um, tried to break, break through and get to the border and, and see, like, ask for asylum, as is their right, right? Um, they were called mobs as well, and they were tear-gassed. And so... Um, I, I do think it's a, it's an it's a racialized idea. I do think it, it refers to people, you know, that there it, it has a class aspect to it. You know, it's it's poor people uh, and a collective of poor people, and and so um, or, or or people who are who are who are marginalized again in these in these various different ways. Um, and so I do think that there is a racial aspect to it, and and you know, uh, certainly a class aspect to it as well. Let's talk about that class aspect for a moment. You write that today the limited legal pathways to the United States are expensive and uncertain. Is the cost and money and time meant to allow for only the migrants the United States wants to enter to be allowed to do so? And if that is the case, what migrants does the United States want to come to the U.S.? Does the U.S. want both the professional who has some money but also the exploitable? Yes, uh, I would say that is that is uh, that is the case. Uh, it has been the case under pretty much every administration um, in in recent memory. Um, you know, uh, and 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 I I would say you can you can trace back to the rhetoric of really any any president in in recent history, and and you will you you will find evidence for that, right? Um, there are certainly, you know, ideas of deservingness, and and those are very much colored by ideas of race and ideas of class and ideas, you know, again, like that breaks down further and further the the, the context in which you in, interrogate that. But um, uh, absolutely, I, I, let me let me give an example with with Indians. Just just only <laughs> I just want to talk about Indians because it is a large and very diverse population, and it's a good sort of sample to just you know kind of focus on. And also because I have personal experience, um, but I, I came as a student uh, to the United States, and since then I've you know applied for successive work visas, and and those are have all been extremely expensive, um, and extremely. Um, you know the, the the process has been extremely uncertain i had to you know at one point take uh several months off of a new job uh because um you know processing delays and i couldn't i didn't have a visa i didn't have a work authorization so i just lost out on several months so it is i i want to just caveat by saying even for people like me who are relatively privileged and came here um, you know, legally on visas that are sanctioned or or uh, or at, that at least some um, uh, uh, you know some some people in American power say that these are the right kinds of immigrants. It's a very difficult process, and it's it's that's by design, right? Because that's that's how you weed people out that you say are undesirable, um, and that's how you kind of create these underclasses of people that you can then exploit. Right. So that is how, um, you know, through th you've created these through through laws that, you know, uh, came came about really um, at the beginning of the uh, 20th century um, in the 1920s uh, or 1970s and onwards. Um, you created a system where there was, you know, a certain number of immigrants that would be allowed in legally. 
So the if that, if that was hundred immigrants, the hundred and first person would already be, become illegal, right? Like that's that's sort of uh, the the system that you've created. And then the people who are allowed in, that then you start weeding who you think would be allowed in. Um, very explicitly in in the 1920s, um, you know, no one but uh, Western Europeans were allowed in for for the longest period of time. And in the 1965, you know, at the at the heels of the civil rights um, legislation and the civil rights uh, uh, movement, uh, they opened the doors to a more diverse uh, to to really everyone else in around the world. But they did that in ways that favored, you know, people who already in their home countries would have a certain amount of privilege, a certain amount of class, uh, you know, access to education um, and, and be able to come here as those professionals that were deemed, you know, deserving of being able to come here and, and being plugged into whatever Silicon Valley tech uh, supply chain um, that is useful uh, or, or is deemed useful in this country. So. So that's really, you know, how that system came about. But the sort of flip side of that is then you created these people who had always migrated here, right? I mean, if you think about Mexico, um, there were natural waves of migration. People would come and go for work. You know, they would come here uh, in in, uh, seasonal waves and they they would work here and then they would go back to their countries. Um, And... there, those, 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 my, that migration had already existed. But then, what happened was that they were criminalized. Um, they, they became illegal because um, that created an underclass on both sides of the border for exploitation on both sides of the border. So, so, uh, so, yeah. So it, it's these two different sides of the coin, and you know they're both. It's all part of the same system, uh, but is rarely linked up as such. And you point out that those Indians who embrace Modi's ideology or who otherwise draw power from caste, class, and religious hierarchies at home often migrate abroad with relative ease. They also often back the same or similar politics abroad. You then quote Walia again saying that uh, groups such as Hindus for Trump are best explained through the prisms of Hindutvas, Brahminical supremacy and adjoining Islamophobia rather than the typical explanations of whitewash model minorities or upward class mobility. Is India right now experiencing then a class war and a religious war and a race war? And are they bringing that class war to the United States with the Indian community that is migrating here? Yes. Uh, So I would say that it has always since independence, you know, India's own borders kind of are a reflection of the fact that these divisions were, um, I mean, these divisions were always there, but they were really exploited by the British through various uh, concrete policies. And, and that's sort of why, how you you got from India, you got India, Pakistan, and Bangladesh, right? And that those divisions, those borders were put in place. Um, and then within India, you know, there has always been uh, discrimination against Muslims. There has always been caste discrimination, despite the fact that all of that has been abolished. Um, and, and that, that, you know, manifests in very concrete and violent ways and always has. Um, so I do want to make a note of that. But uh, under the um, under the Modi regime, that's been that's been intensified because that's where they draw their power from. They they draw their power from um, from Hindutva. So Modi famously 
um, was a part of this uh, this paramilitary neo-fascist uh, organization called the RSS. The um, you know, and 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 those are not my characterizations. That that's that's sort of how academics studying fascism you know call this organization. So that's sort of the that's like the 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 organization that like that has been backing him this whole time, and that's where they get their politics from. And it's a Hindu. Uh, so, you know, supremacist uh, 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 identity, uh, identitarian politics, and 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 because they draw their power from that, um, you know, <laughs> in an obvious sort of consequence is that they they've subjugated everyone else and done so to degrees that are I would say unpre- unprecedented. So, um, you know, in in my hometown again, um, you saw. Uh, for the last couple of years, we've seen protest after protest because of new laws being citizenship laws actually uh, being passed that are um, discriminatory against uh, Muslims and, and actually would be discriminatory against um, you know marginalized people of various backgrounds. Um, we saw uh, the police being uh, an explicit arm of um, state violence where it. it Again, it has always been, but you know they they were entering Muslim universities and beating up students who were protesting. Uh, we we saw a a, a pogrom. Um, um, I've I've like lost track of time, but like I think it was uh, twenty. It was last year, or or no, it was twenty nineteen, um, where uh, you know you saw mass violence on the streets of New Delhi, um, uh, and you saw. Uh, the police basically looking the other way and and the the victims the 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 um the majority of the victims uh, of this violence were muslims um you know you heard uh, journalists accounts of um the the mobs there and i'm now using this as a as a sort of uh, you know intentionally the mob violence uh being uh, you know the mobs yelling uh, Hindutva slogans when attacking Muslims. You know, called, yelling out slurs. This is all well documented, and yet very much denied by that government. Um, their their uh, policies against refugees, especially from Bangladesh, from Myanmar, um, very much reflect those. The rhetoric and the uh, the the policies very much reflect those of the Trump administration. So there's already that parallel there. Um, and then you know when you have those those people who are uh, who follow uh, the Modi government who support them and draw power from from there and similar policies, um, they they are you know and have the sort of class privileges to be able to immigrate uh, easier in an easier fashion. Um, then they take those those policies and those politics abroad, right? And then they they support the same policies and politics abroad, and and that is what really Walia is talking about here is that you then see the same Islamophobia and being um, replicated in in the support for Trump's policies, for example. You're right that it can be difficult to untangle uh, political persecution, religious oppression, caste violence, and economic exploitation in the experiences of people at the bottom of this food chain. This internal social hierarchy sits like a Russian doll within the larger hierarchy of nations. Local marginalization is compounded by global disparity. So what role does global disparity play in religious oppression and caste violence in India? I mean, I understand how it might affect uh, economic exploitation, but what's global disparities impact on India's religious oppression and caste violence? 
Yeah, I, I think that there is this um, this tacit approval uh, of of the people doing that violence, as long as there there is some sort of you know, um, or there's some sort of mutual um, uh, mutual benefit, right, uh, at a global stage. So Modi, for example, is is highly normalized by um, many, many lawmakers in the West um, and, and you know, certainly many leaders here in, in the United States um, because he perpetuates, he, he perpetuates the kind of, um, you know, a version of the, what we call here as racial capitalism back home. He perpetuates, he, he propagates those same ideas and institutions that benefit um, people, you know, the people in power here in the United States. And because he does that, um, I argue, uh, he is able to, uh, you know, on the flip side of that, you know, violate human rights in, in, in well-documented, explicit, like out in the open ways um, and, and absolutely gets no, that gets no attention or that gets no, um, uh, that's absolutely, you know, people turn the other way. Um, or I don't know, at a global stage, uh, countries turn turn the other way, and so I think that's really what um, a lot of people have been talking about. And you know, it it, it becomes clearer and clearer because um, at this point, there is just such an interconnected transatlantic um, uh, sort of resistance uh, that is growing against all of these different authoritarian and a recognition that they're all sort of drawing from the same pool of power. Um, that there is a greater recognition for this. There is a greater recognition for these ties and these connections and how they sort of, you know, um, be it Israel or Iran or, or India or, um, you know, wherever else, um, you know, they all sort of draw from the same powers and, and, and sort of the people who are subjugated are subjugated everywhere. Um, and so that's really, I think, a growing, there is a growing recognition that, I mean, you know, uh, I see on Twitter all the time, people making these connections, um, journalists in India, uh, journalists who live here, um, who have who are of Indian descent or have ties back there, um, making those kinds of connections about how all of this is related. Um, but you know, that that seems to still be missing from the broader mainstream conversation. So how much does the Indian public support police and state violence committed by the Modi government against protesters and, dis- and dissidents? So I don't have the, I don't have any, um, I don't have data at hand, but I would say just anecdotally, there is widespread, uh, there is still widespread uh, support for for all of this. Uh, I think one of the ways that the Modi government has been able, has been really successful is because it has, um, you know, very much like other authoritarian governments, uh, uh, it has been very good at um, man- manipulating uh, information uh, flows and, and, you know, misinformation flows and, and, um, you know, for example, in India, like there, there's so much misinformation through WhatsApp groups, and there's there's so many sort of these information bubbles created within, um, uh, especially supporters of Modi, um, and and so you know there, there is a real skepticism uh, that he is going to be able to lose power in the next election because of just how how entrenched that belief is that he is whatever he did is for the right reasons. And he has weaponized this um, colonial era law, uh, sedition law against journalists, against activists. I mean, they're all, um, they, there have been so many who have been arrested um, 
I wrote about one, you know, this young activist, not even, she hadn't really even um, been very well known before. She, she, she did, she's a climate activist who did some, you know, local activism. Um, and uh, because she tweeted about the farmers' protests, she was arrested. Uh, for a while, it, it's it's a scare tactic, right? It's it's um, but the way that they do it is by painting anyone who's um, who who is um, dissenting um, and expressing their dissent as anti-national, um, as enemies of the state, and then you know using all the laws and their power tools and the power to be able to surveil and and you know uh, criminalize them. Um, that's really how they've succeeded. And because they're, they paint them as real threats to the nation, um, they've been very successful at that message. And they've been very successful at having their followers believe that everything that they're doing is, is, is you know, in the interest of the nation. You mentioned how Aliyah also argues Modi's Hindu supremacist or Hindutva ideology finds common cause with white supremacists and Nazi ideologies in the West. How is this how do how or how can white supremacy and nazi ideology be applied within a hindu context because some people might find that as contradictory yeah um there's actually yeah this is a i feel like there's a lot more being written about this which i'm really happy about um but yeah so uh, there is this this belief within the hindutva ideology that they're um you know that these ideas of purity that are very much common strains within Nazi and, and white supremacist ideologies as well. Um, idea of, uh, you know, purity of line and purity of descent and purity of blood, um, which is why, um, you know, Hindu, Hindutva uh, uh, believers uh, or supporters will often characterize themselves as Aryan, uh, Aryans who came to India and, and sort of, um, you know, made their home there, but they 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 sort of trace their lineage to uh, to Aryans, um, and sort of that's really where the 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 core of the uh, the similarity lies, and and the way that that's perpetuated is through this um the the, the same things that you will see really everywhere, right? Um, the the discouraging of intermarriage between people of various castes and various um. Uh, religions um, in India, for example, there's there's been there's been this um, this this strange and absurd campaign against um, uh, Muslim and Hindu marriages, especially if they involve Hindu women. Um, you know, so it's the same idea of using, for example, how in in the U.S., white women were all often used as um, you know sort of these foils to to uh, essentially to lynch black men, right? I mean, they were, we remember in the Emmett Till case very famously, but this was this was um, widely prevalent. And in the same way, you know, sort of the victimization of like Hindu women as being sort of these, um, being preyed upon by Muslim men and then being converted uh, after marriage um, is, is a big narrative that is really, really seductive to a lot of people in India right now. So, I mean, you can see, and it happens in a lot of, I mean, Explicit violence, of course, is is common. Um, you know, vigilante violence against people who eat, for example. Um, th- there were a lot of headlines about this over the years, but uh, who eat beef um, have been people who eat beef. Muslims in India, for example, uh, often will be um, often will be lynched uh, by Hindu mobs because 
uh, you know, they're, 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 because uh, Hindus don't eat beef, right? They, they have the, um, it's against their religious beliefs or whatever. So uh, it's this sort of, uh, uh, it's, it's the same sort of uh, uh, tactics and the same um, systems of separation and, um, you know, endogamy and all of these things that, that perpetuate in all of these different belief systems. Um, and they're very much linked to the same ideas of purity. And that's really why um, they're connected. And that's really why they've, they've sort of grown in, in parallel um, to each other, especially in recent years. So does the legacy of the caste system make India perpetually vulnerable to fascism? How big of an obstacle is that for those who maybe are activists on the left who want to challenge the system? Um, I would say, uh, you know, and I don't want to speak to, for anyone. Um, I, I would say caste activists, anti-caste activists would be, you would have a lot more to say about this. But uh, I, I feel like, what I've seen is that uh, the caste system is very much also prevalent in the Indian left. Um, it is not a, you know, it's it's the same way that racism can be, <laughs> uh, can still figure in, in the American left. Uh, it's, it's the same way that those systems are related. Um, and I would say that um, it is certainly a challenge for people who are, um, you know, who, who consider themselves leftists in India. And India has a very robust left uh, leftist movement. I mean, to, uh, Bengal is, is a really prominent state where that has always been the stronghold for the, um, you know, for the Indian left, uh, the parties that are um, the communist parties, et cetera. Um, and so have various states in the, in the South. So India has a very, very strong uh, leftist movement um, and I think the modern challenge is certainly um, trying to reconcile the way that casteism uh, appears. is certainly a challenge that is um, that you know more and more people are talking about now, um, but one that um, I think for the same reasons that you you that might be a thorny conversation here in the United States, it's 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 still there's a lot there's a long way to go there. Um, in terms of how the caste system overlaps with everything else, um, I think, you know, it, the ideas of these permanent castes that are linked to, um, I mean, it, it, is a, it is a system that is deeply linked to a person's position in the economy, right? Because the caste system, the whole idea of the caste system is that you are born to do a certain kind of job and you will always do that certain kind of job because of your caste. And because of that, you have a certain place in society. And so I think it is very, I think there is a lot there to, there's a lot there that if there are people who want to interrogate um, how to resist both, both those systems, there is overlap there that they can, um, they can kind of cling to and, and draw solidarities. Um, I, I do think that there is a long way to go uh, in doing that, uh, at least currently. And you, you, as you were just saying, there's a very active left, a very active protest movement in India. You write of Indian migrants in detention at the U.S.-Mexico border, quote, over the years, dozens have launched hunger strikes against the dehumanizing conditions of confinement and been met with brutal responses. According to a new American Civil Liberties Union report based on internal government documents, detainees engaging in this kind of protest have been subject to force feeding, solitary confinement, excessive force and uh, retaliatory deportations. Do 
Indian farm labor migrants protest their detention any more or less than other migrants? After all, Indian farm workers engage in some of the biggest protests in human history in January. And as you're pointing out, there's an active left and protest movement. So are Indian farmers more so involved in protests within U.S. detention centers? You know, again, like this is all the, like there. There is no data on this, right? So I I, I want to caveat that, but this is what I've heard from um uh, from migrants themselves that I've spoken to in detention. Some of whom did not grow up very far from me, um, where I grew up. But you know, I'm here talking to you, and they're they're in detention. In uh, the last person I spoke to was in New Mexico and had been there for a year. Um, but something I've heard uh, often from lawyers and from these migrants themselves is that um. Uh, often uh, South Asian migrants will will take on hunger strikes, and you know I've always wondered because this this was a this was this is a long-standing protest technique in India. Um, I you know obviously very very prominent during the anti-colonial um, movement against the British. Uh, you know Gandhi went on uh, days long, months long hunger strikes all the time. It, it, it's a it's a very well-known protest technique, um, you know, civil disobedience technique. And I, I've always wondered whether there was this sort of cultural connection there. I have no evidence to say that there is, but but I certainly have heard from lawyers that this is something that is widely embraced within, um, uh, you know, uh, migrants who are uh, in detention, who are from South Asian countries, from Bangladesh, from India, um, and then it spreads uh, elsewhere. Now, again, I don't know to what extent you know uh, migrants from other countries also take up this tactic. I know that some do certainly, um, but again, you know, this is something that I've heard is very common among South Asian migrants, um, and uh, I think it's it's a, a it's it's a really difficult. Um, I think it's a really difficult thing to do. I mean, the, the way that, uh, well, one of the big differences, even though this was certainly, you know, anti-colonial uh, Indians in anti, sort of in the anti-colonial movement would take on hunger strikes in prison all the time. But there was so much media attention around that, whereas this is, I think, a very siloed um, media landscape where those stories don't always get out. Um, and so the kind of attention that you know you may have otherwise generated, um, I don't think that's always possible here. Um, and and the the flip side of that is because um, the American immigrant detention system is so opaque um, that there's a lot of ways in which um, this retaliation against these these sorts of protests take place takes place that again we don't hear about till much later. Um, for example, the the force feeding uh, this this happened most recently or or most prominently in recent years in El Paso in an El Paso um, detention center where there were a bunch of South Asian migrants, um, you know. And I'd spoken I'd spoken to one of their lawyers, and and this had been going on for a while, and they had been force fed, which is you know it's a it's a very violent way um of of subjugating a person and you can you can you know this was a a force fading order a force feeding order that had been um signed off by a judge so this was a court ordered uh, force feeding of of these migrants um and this was all because at, at any point in this this whole process they could have just been released uh, on parole and that is uh, that is a discretion that you know ice has that is a discretion that um, they can exercise at any point, but um, you know, instead there were these court orders force feeding them, and then obviously this uh, you know 
the um, the study that I linked to, the the report that I linked to, says that this was widespread. Much much uh, it it goes back much longer than we knew, and it is much wider uh, a practice to retaliate against such such protest movements in in migrant detention. So, you know, uh, again, we we just don't hear about it as much. You also write that with the rise of Maquiladora's export-focused border factories, often U.S.-owned, in the latter half of the 20th century, the two nations together abolished the borders, the border for goods and capital, but not for people. That's the U.S. and Mexico. Since migration cycles had already been established, people kept coming in response. U.S. immigration policies increased deportations, creating a permanent underclass of laborers on both sides of the border with Mexico. So how dependent are businesses on both sides of the border on this permanent underclass? And is maintaining the permanent underclass the source of all of what are considered the problems of the so-called border crisis? Um, I think they're very dependent on on this underclass. I mean, people need to work to live and, and you know, uh, a lot of people are coming or, or made their way to this border in the first place to be able to provide for their families back home. Um, and so they will take whatever they're given because um, their other choices have been stripped from them. And so, uh, so yeah, no, I, I do. I, I think that there are agricultural businesses um, along the border that very much profit from their labor. Um, you know, um, there's also like there's also legal visa programs H two A H two B, which are for seasonal workers but have been criticized for not having enough labor protections. Um, and so there, you know, these are people who have been, um, who, there is a long history of this happening in various different ways of, you know, Mexican labor, for example, coming um, through the, the Bracero program, program and being exploited that way, um, being given, you know, housing that's, that's, um, uh, substandard, giving you know, not being given enough wages, being being made to go through uh, border screenings that are intrusive and and um, medical screenings at the border where they were uh, essentially uh, doused in in sort of harmful liquids to do disinfect them. You know, there's there's been so many ways in which their labor has been extracted, but they've still been mistreated and and sort of dehumanized. Um, and I, I do think that still that, that happens um, today. There is widespread bi- bipartisan support for H two H two B programs. Um, it's one of the few immigration thing uh, like legis- um few immigration amendments that gets added to um, various other bills and, and, and will pass, you know, no problem. Um, as you can imagine, other amendments tend to be much more polarizing. But um, but yeah, I mean, there is widespread um, uh, support for for such programs, whether they be legal and then, of co- uh, then obviously also support for um, uh, folks who come without authorization and and you know, because they don't have that authorization can be subject to um, just a lot more coercive treatment. We have been speaking with Tanvi Misra, who posted the Baffler article, Broader Crises, Indian Border Crossers Illuminate the Interconnectedness of Mass Migration. You can follow Tanvi on Twitter at TanviM. Find out more about Tanvi at TanviMisra.com. But check out Tanvi's blog at Eyes Emoji on Migration. That's eyes emoji on migration dot substack 
Com. One last question for you, Tanvi, and as we do with all of our guests, we promise. Our final question is what we call the question from hell, the question we might hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. Following 9-11 here in the United States, many were stuck in an unfortunate us-versus-them framework, as promoted by President George W. Bush, and we're asking why do they hate us? Is the ideology of the United States that forces people to leave their homes around the world, like is happening within India, is that why they hate us? Um, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I, I don't know to what extent it's the kind of ideology, uh, but I do know that that's, a, that's been you know, it's 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 a it's an ideology that's been extremely su- successful for a long period of time, um, and you know because it's been so widely embraced by those who can get their messages across most widely. I mean, American media is everywhere. Um, those are messages that are then internalized and embraced elsewhere. And I think these are those are the wrong messages, but they've been. Um, They've been very popular for a long period of time in mean, clash of civilizations, et cetera, you know. So uh, I think, um, you know, if, if there is, um, I think, a more focus on the fact that what, or what I'm arguing in this piece is that ultimately it's all us. And, uh, you know, trying to say otherwise is actually just um, trying to bring, trying to ignore the fact that all of the problems that everyone around the world is facing, they're all our problems and they will, they will want, you know, either today or tomorrow uh, become apparent as such. Um, And so, um, so yeah, so I don't know. uh, So I I can imagine that that is certainly, um, you know, a message that has been widely accepted by the rest of the world because the, the United States is, is the, you know, the, the broadcaster, the, the, uh, the entity that broadcasted it. Tanvi, I cannot thank you enough for being on the show today. This is really a fascinating article, and it's a great way for people to think about that interconnectedness, that we are all in this together in a certain way. In a lot of ways, we're not when it comes to racial and economic disparities, but in a lot of ways, the systems that connect us are all the same. Thank you so much for being on our show. And again, everybody should check out Tanvi's blog at eyesemojionmigration.substack.com. Thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you so much for having me. It was a great conversation. Thanks. Live from late capitalism, where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing, this is hell. And if you enjoyed that conversation with Tanvi Misra, please, please show your support by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you can find all of our merchandise or by subscribing to our weekly Patreon podcast, which happens every Friday with a new monologue from me and a classic interview unavailable anywhere else online at patreon.com slash this is hell. You want to celebrate our 25th anniversary of airing on WNUR, which is actually officially tomorrow, Tuesday, July 20th, 2021. You want to show your support for this is hell. You want to show your appreciation for 25 years of broadcasting. Go to thisishell.com and click on support and see all of the ways you can support This Is Hell. Just please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are answering so far. This week's question from hell is where did it all go wrong? Thomas K. says not taking that left turn at Albuquerque. <laughs> see, that's a location. <laughs> um, Sam B. Uh, three and a half billion years ago. Okay. Aaron B. Closing MySpace for Facebook. Jacob M. Choosing cubic zirconia instead of diamond. (laughs) Okay. 
uh, Benjamin C. When the Fonz jumped the shark. Okay. <laughs> Where did it all go wrong? Where did it all go wrong? Um, Pedro N. When the pineapple on pizza debate started. Ronaldo M. Uh, about 30 microseconds after the Big Bang, as the rapidly expanding universe cooled enough for quarks to condense into proto- protons and neutrons. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> um, Dan K. When Harry met Sally. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> And the last response for today, uh, Josh W., when Bob Dylan went electric at Newport Folk Festival. I have a recording of that, and it's very entertaining. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. It is currently available at thisishell.com when you click on support. Don't get me wrong, I do not like Bob Dylan. But when he goes electric at Newport and you can hear the people in the audience being very upset, very very entertaining. You can leave your answer to this week's question, Mella, at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email it to me at chuck at thisishell.com. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory. This week in Rotten History on July 18th, 1966, 55 years ago, yesterday, Sunday, the 23-year-old Texan rock star and producer Bobby Fuller was found dead by his mother in the front seat of her Oldsmobile, which was parked in the lot at his Los Angeles apartment complex. He was sprawled across the seat next to a gas can and rubber hose, his body and clothes wet and stinking of gasoline. Though the car had been parked in uh, the lot for less than 40 minutes, Fuller was found in rigor mortis, indicating that he had been dead for hours. So it sounds like he died somewhere else of some other cause, and someone was trying to cover up the death by setting him on fire in his mother's car, but they never actually got to setting his body body on fire. Fuller's body was reportedly covered with either bruises or blood hemorrhages, and one of his fingers was broken. The coroner's report strangely cited no indication of foul play, calling Fuller's death an accident or possible suicide because, you know, people often kill themselves and then pour gasoline all over their body. Makes sense. But some people suspected the involvement of organized crime, really. And the L.A. police were criticized for discarding evidence and failing to take fingerprints. Hmm. In a crime that may have been conducted by organized crime, the cops were not doing a good job of collecting evidence. Fascinating. At the time of his death, Fuller's career had been on an upward trend. His biggest hit, I Fought the Law, recorded with his group The Bobby Fuller Four, was actually a cover of an obscure tune by... Buddy Holly's former band, The Crickets, many years later, would become a rock and roll standard, covered by countless other acts, including The Clash, Bruce Springsteen, and Green Day, but the mystery of Fuller's death has never been resolved. Okay, let me resolve it for you. The mob was involved in his career. The mob was involved in a lot of rock bands' careers in the 50s and 60s. Fuller had success with the mob's help. He owed the mob a debt or a favor which he refused to fulfill. So they tortured him and beat him to death, figuring they could get rid of the evidence in a car fire. But something or someone must have startled the would-be arsons, and they fled instead of lighting him on fire. Case solved. Also in Rotten History, July 19, 1919, 102 years ago today, Monday, African Americans living in one of the poor areas of Washington, D.C. were randomly attacked by mobs of white military men, most of them drunk. The previous day, a young white woman named Elsie Stefnik who was married to a civilian employee of the Navy, had reported a black man named Charles Rawls to the police, accusing him of purposely bumping into her on the street and trying to steal her umbrella. 
After Rawls was arrested, questioned, and released, news of the incident had spread quickly through the DC rumor mill until it was embellished, exaggerated, and inflated into a story about gangs of rapist thugs attacking white women across the city. So in 1919, the telephone game could change a dismissed accusation of attempted umbrella theft into roving gangs of rapist thugs. Got it. In a, dis in a district of seedy pool halls and bar rooms operating in defiance of prohibition laws already in force in Washington, D.C., and heedless of the ongoing flu epidemic, while veterans just returned from World War I in Europe heard the white, sorry, white veterans just returned from World War I in Europe heard the wild tales and were especially mad because they already viewed black men as their adversaries in the now-flooded job market. Sure, they fought together in the war, but working together at home, that is intolerable. Coagulating into an alcohol-fueled mob of more than a hundred white men toting guns, clubs, and lead pipes, they charge into a nearby neighborhood known as Bloodfield, because of course the African-American part of town is called Bloodfield, and started beating on any black people they found on the street, dragging them out of cars if necessary. Within a day, armed African-Americans began to fight back, and for four days the nation's capital was engulfed in violence, much of it encouraged with hysterical headlines in local media, including the Washington Post. The D.C. city police were ineffectual. Not until the fourth day of bloodshed did President Woodrow Wilson, a noted white supremacist, no, finally send in federal troops. At that point, the city was hit by a raging thunderstorm that brought the city rioting to an end. By then, some 40 people were dead and more than 150 injured in some of the worst unrest in a year marked by racially motivated violence across the United States, including riots in Chicago that would ignite just one week later. In fact, as past guest Peter Cole, who is the author of Dock Worker Power, Race and Activism, and who we interviewed back in, I think, 2019 or 2018, as he shared on social media yesterday, Saturday, July 24th, this coming Saturday, will be the anniversary event for the Chicago Race Riot of 1919, a commemoration project which Peter founded and co-directs the third annual bike tour in Bronzeville commemorating the 1919 Chicago Race Riot begins at 10 a.m. in Bronzeville. There will be a discussion of the history of Chicago's worst incident of racial violence, which continues to physically shape the city via segregation. There will also be a historic bike tour of parts of Bronzeville and Bridgeport. There will also be an unveiling of prototypes of some of the artistic markers that they plan on posting throughout the area. To find out more, go to crr19biketour2021.eventbrite.com crr19biketour2021.eventbrite.com that's Rotten History, and this is Hell. Jess, who is on tomorrow's show beginning at 10 a.m. Chicago time here at thisishell.com. Unless something's changed in the last 24 hours, I think we're still working on it. And Wednesday, Thursday, anything yet? No. All right, well, on Thursday we will have a moment of truth with Jeff Dorch, and I'm sure of that. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Jess Lipka. Thanks to Jess for producing. Thanks to Tanvi Misra for being our guest. Also, thanks to Alex Jerry for booking today's guest. And thanks to Ronaldo Magaldi for Rotten History. This week's hangover cure is rubbing your face with the top of a bullet point pen, whatever the hell that thing is. We told you so. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. And my demon tries to knock me down, and my demon tries to put me on a hell ride.
Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more Interview Hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.